Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. I try to not have heroes. The first chapter of James Lowe, an amazing critique of American history textbooks, Lies My Teacher Told Me, a book that influenced me a good deal when I was young, and had I not read it, you might not be listening to this podcast. The first chapter of that book cautions against the habit of what Lowen calls heroification, when textbooks and political figures and popular culture and propaganda and all that, they strip all the nuance out of a historical figure and they turn them into a statue to be worshipped rather than a real person to be known. Lowen argues that real history is populated by people who are flawed, who have depths, who are complex, and who are ultimately more interesting than the simple picture of them that popular history or conventional history might present. So I try not to have heroes. But if I did have heroes, Nellie Bly would be one of them, one of my favorite journalists of all time. She was daring, sometimes gimmicky, occasionally hacky, but she pulled off amazing stunts that I, as a mere freelance journalist, would love to be able to do, and today I'm going to talk about one of the most famous exploits of hers when she went undercover at a New York lunatic asylum. And I am going to be quoting Bly fairly extensively in this podcast from her writings, and she did write about physical abuse of the mentally ill at the facility that she infiltrated. If that's the sort of thing that you find uncomfortable or upsetting, I suggest that you stop listening. Uh, I'm actually going to be doing two episodes on Nellie Bly, and this one might be a bit off-putting. Next week, I think, will be uh, slightly happier. But first, some background on our subject. Our uh, Nellie Bly's origin story is sort of like something out of a novel or a movie. Uh, she was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran in Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania, which today is part of a suburb of Pittsburgh. Her father died when she was fairly young, and her mother, probably for financial reasons, remarried later and, scandalously in the 1800s, got divorced. Of course, in the 1800s, uh, it wasn't like now. People had to go in front of a judge and explain why they were getting divorced. Uh, and young Elizabeth, and I will be calling her Elizabeth right now. She hasn't adopted the Nellie Bly pen name yet. Uh, she explained, quote, My stepfather has been generally drunk since he married my mother. When drunk, he is very cross, and cross when sober. And that is the kind of natural wit and flippancy that would do pretty much any writer well. That kind of natural talent, I don't know if it can be taught. Elizabeth moved with her mother to Pittsburgh proper, and she began to attend school so she could become a teacher, which was one of the few professional jobs actually open to women back then. Uh, later on, though, she had to drop out of school for lack of funds. Now, how she came into journalism. This is the part that could be in a movie or a TV show or something like that. Her big break, it came in 1880, when a columnist for a local Pittsburgh dispatch, a guy who called himself the Quiet Observer in print, wrote a column titled, What Girls Are Good For. In this column, the Quiet Observer wrung his hands about the state of women nowadays in 1880, and made all of your standard arguments about how women should stay home 
and cook and clean and not be out there earning money for themselves. He called working women a monstrosity. As a Star Trek fan, I somewhat suspect that the Quiet Observer might have been a Ferengi, and just hated the idea that females were earning profit. Elizabeth wrote a rebuttal to the newspaper and signed it Lonely Orphan Girl. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a bunch of editors at a newspaper picking up a letter to the editor, or nowadays an internet comment, and deciding that it is so wonderfully clever and well-crafted that they're going to hire the person who wrote it, give them an assignment. That is exactly what happened with Elizabeth Cochran. Uh, editorial at the Dispatch was so impressed with her rebuke that they offered her an assignment. Uh, she did well with it, and soon she had a job with the Dispatch. As a freelance writer who does not have a regular job with any publication, I wish it was still that easy to get a media job. It is not. Back then, pseudonyms, particularly for women writers, were common. So Elizabeth chose the name Nellie Bly as hers, uh, which was from a popular Stephen Foster song. And she was at first confined what were known as the women's pages of the newspaper. They were all about fashion, cooking, that kind of thing. Uh, but her work was more like advocacy journalism. She wrote about the difficulties of working women, particularly in factories. She critiqued Pennsylvania's divorce laws, which she had some familiarity with, given her mother's situation. And she talked her editors at the dispatch into sending her to Mexico for six months, where she sent back slice-of-life human interest stories about, you know, what it was like to live in Mexico. Which is great! She did travel writing. She was 21 when she did this. I am maybe filled with envy. I wish somebody was paying me to go to Mexico and write about it when I was 21. No one was. I was at school, in college. Um, but when she got back, the dispatch, they put her on the woman's pages again, and she was sort of fed up. On the strength of her Mexican coverage, she got herself a job with Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. You remember Joseph Pulitzer's New York World? It's one of the newspapers in that documentary, Newsies. Before she left, she sent a message to the Quiet Observer, the columnist whose misogynistic piece had prompted her to write the dispatch in the first place. Dear QO, she wrote, I'm off to New York. Look out for me. Bly. At the World, she had an idea for a larger project. Um, initially, she wanted to travel to Europe, then book a trip back to New York in steerage, and go through Ellis Island to see, firsthand, what the city's immigrant population had been through. Editorial at the World, probably well aware that such a project would be a logistical nightmare, turned that idea down. But Bly, and I'm going to call her by her pen name from this point on, and her editors hatched another idea. Uh, Nellie Bly would feign insanity and get herself confined in New York's Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum, where she would live amongst the inmates and learn firsthand just went on in the large, ominous building on what is now called Roosevelt Island. Her resulting report ended up being a damning portrait of New York's mental health facilities at the time. I am not a mental health professional or expert, but I feel fairly confident in saying that early mental health facilities were used mainly for holding and storing the mentally ill, as opposed to treating them. And it would sometimes appear that those inmates were confined in hospitals 
and they were not even mentally ill. Uh, for example, a while ago I read a book on my own state's local asylum, the Oregon State Hospital, and here's a list of why people were admitted to that institution in the 1880s and 90s. They were listed as being overstudious, a convict or suicidal, alcoholic, a weak, decrepit old lady. They had hallucinations. One person was listed as having insanity, mild type. Uh, one was a deaf and dumb boy. There was one man who was put in the Oregon State Hospital for having a business reversal. One girl was called simply idiotic. One person suffered sunstroke. Insane for 15 years was another reason given. Crazed and starving, morphine fiend, violent impulse, alcoholic, pauper, assaulted a woman, fits of angers, cocaine addict, nude exhibition, threats of violence, and, really curious, one guy who is just listed as having been captured with a lasso in 1889. point I'm trying to get across with this is that we're not talking about a conception of mental health the way that modern people would see it. Uh, at this time in the late 1800s, people like Freud are just starting to construct modern notions of psychology. So, to get into the asylum on Blackwell's Island, Nellie Bly didn't have to get diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or any other specific ailment that we would talk about now. Instead, she just had to appear sort of weird. Uh, she checked herself into a boarding house for working women. She behaved socially inappropriately and eventually found herself in front of the authorities for acting kind of odd. Here's an account of a conversation she had with a doctor. Doctor is speaking first. Tell me, are you a woman of the town? I do not understand you, I replied, heartily disgusted with him. I mean, have you allowed men to provide for and keep you? I felt like slapping him in the face, but I had to maintain my composure, so I simply said, I do not know what you are talking about. I always lived at home. After many more questions, fully as useless and senseless, he left me to talk with the nurse. Positively demented, he said. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. And so I passed my second medical expert. After this, I began to have a smaller regard for the ability of doctors than I ever had before, and a greater one for myself. I felt now that no doctor could tell whether people were insane or not, so long as the case was not violent. Also, as she is being interviewed by the authorities, doctors, judges, etc., uh, Nellie Bly also pretended to be from Cuba, for some reason. I guess that helped. Uh, but the authorities, they bought her performance, and Nellie Bly was eventually ferried to Blackwell's Island. She immediately started speaking with the inmates there to get the sense of the kind of people that New York had decided needed to be removed from society at large. This is an account of one woman she met on her first day who got into the asylum pretty much by happenstance, uh, mainly because she was German and could not make herself understood and was simply ferried off to Blackwell's Island. And after describing the whole process of how uh, this woman was apprehended and talked to and chucked into the asylum somewhat unfairly, Bly writes the following. Thus was Mrs. Louise Shans consigned to the asylum without a chance of making herself understood. Can such carelessness be excused, I wonder, when it is so easy to get an interpreter? If the confinement was but for a few days, one might question the necessity. 
but here was a woman taken without her own consent from the free world to an asylum, and there given no chance to prove her sanity. Confined most probably for life behind asylum bars, without even being told in her language the why and wherefore. Compare this with a criminal, who is given every chance to prove his innocence. Who would not rather be a murderer and take the chance for life than be declared insane without hope of escape? Mrs. Shans begged in German to know where she was, and pleaded for liberty. Her voice broken by sobs, she was led unheard out to us. Bly also describes several of the inmates she meets, who apparently are mentally ill, and says, They look so lost and hopeless. They were chattering nonsense to invisible persons. Others were laughing or crying aimlessly. And one old gray-haired woman was nudging me and, with winks and sage noddings, of the head and pitiful uplifting of the eyes and hands, was assuring me that I must not mind the poor creatures, as they were all mad. And in her reporting, during her ten days at the asylum, Bly spends quite a lot of time on the shoddiness and sparseness of the facility. The food is not merely bad, it's nearly spoiled, and much of the institution is without heat of any kind. Bly and her fellow inmates were forced to take baths in freezing cold water, and more than once she was reminded that the rationale for this deprivation was that poor people receiving charity should not go with even small comforts. For example, when Miss Group, that is one of the asylum staff, came in, I asked if I could not have a nightgown. We have not such things in this institution, she said. I do not like to sleep without, I replied. Well, I don't care about that, she said. You are in a public institution now, and you can't expect to get anything. This is charity, and you should be thankful for what you get. But the city pays to keep these places up, I urged, and pays to be kind to the unfortunates brought here. Well, you don't need to expect any kindness here, for you won't get it, she said, and she went out and closed the door. I think that fundamental and kind of cruel idea that people who are receiving some kind of benefit, and we're using the term benefit really loosely here, from the state or from society, should not be able to enjoy even basic little pleasures. Bly's account might be a little embellished. In fact, I would actually be very surprised if she didn't embellish while she was writing this. But she makes the implicit point again and again that sensual joys like, say, food or even nightgowns are not something that the inmates, you know, qualify for. They're not allowed things like that or heat. They're not even allowed grass. Quoting Bly again, and this is about outside uh, during the day when several of the very bad-off inmates are paraded around while tied together. A long cable rope fastened to wide leather belts, and these belts locked around the waist of fifty-two women. At the end of the rope was a heavy iron cart, and in it two women, one nursing a sore foot, and another screaming at some nurse saying, You beat me and I shall not forget it. You want to kill me. And then she would sob and cry. The woman on the rope, as the patients called it, were each busy on their individual freaks. Some were yelling all the while. One who had blue eyes saw me look at her, and she turned as far as she could, talking and smiling, with that terrible, horrifying look of absolute insanity stamped on her. The doctors might safely judge on her case. The horror of that sight to one who had never been near an insane person before 
was something unspeakable. I looked at the pretty lawns, which I had once thought was such a comfort to the poor creatures confined on the island, and laughed at my own notions. What enjoyment is it to them? They are not allowed on the grass. It is only to look at. I saw some patients eagerly and caressingly lift a nut or a colored leaf that had fallen on the path, but they were not permitted to keep them. The nurses would always compel them to throw their little bit of God's comfort away. So, what would the inmates do? Uh, they weren't really allowed on the grass. Uh, obviously, they couldn't sit around watching TV. Pretty much what they were allowed to do was sit around in spare Spartan quarters and, I suppose, look at the walls and contemplate existence. According to Bly, that was really the only sanctioned activity available besides work. I'm going to quote Bly again, uh, at length, about the benches that they were expected to sit on during their downtime for long periods of time. I was never so tired as I grew sitting on those benches. Several of the patients would sit on one foot or sideways to make a change, but they were always reproved and told to sit up straight. If they talked, they were scolded and told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What, excepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability, to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight-back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading, and let her know nothing of the world or its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. I do not think it would take two months. I think that that sort of treatment would probably affect a person fairly dramatically much, much quicker. Bly makes it very clear in her account that the conditions at the asylum were horrific, even on their own. There's nothing to do. Uh, they are on those benches and made to sit for long periods of time, which I think one could construe is a type of torture. And the patients are not even allowed the most basic human diversions, such as going outside and sitting on grass. From Bly's perspective, just being at Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum is bad enough. But it gets worse. She also, fairly dramatically and horrifically, details more than a few instances of physical abuse of the inmates by the staff, such as the following. Soon after my advent, that is, you know, her preliminary time there, a girl called Irina Little Page was brought in. She was, as she had been born, silly, and her tender spot was, as with many sensible women, her age. She claimed eighteen, and would grow very angry if told to the contrary. The nurses were not long in finding this out, and they teased her. Arena, said Miss Grady, the doctors say that you are thirty-three instead of eighteen, and the other nurses laughed. They kept her until the simple creature began to yell and cry, saying she wanted to go home, and that everybody treated her badly. After they had gotten all the amusements out of her they wanted, and she was crying, they began to scold her and tell her to keep quiet. She grew more hysterical every moment until they pounced upon her and slapped her face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry the more, so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. 
and they dragged her out to the closet, and I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones. After several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day. That is horrifying. That is just completely unnecessary sadism. And that's not the only instance where Bly describes abuse by the asylum staff to the inmates there. Here's Bly again. There is a Frenchwoman confined in Hall 6, or was during my stay, whom I firmly believed to be perfectly sane. I watched her and talked with her every day, excepting the last three, and I was unable to find any delusion or mania in her. Her name is Josephine Desparou, if that is spelled correctly, and her husband and all her friends are in France. Josephine feels her position keenly. Her lips tremble, and she breaks down crying when she talks of her helpless condition. How did you get here? I asked. One morning as I was trying to get breakfast, I grew deathly sick, and two officers were called in by the woman of the house, and I was taken to the station house. I was unable to understand their proceedings, and they paid little attention to my story. Doings in this country were new to me, and before I realized it, I was lodged as an insane woman in this asylum. When I first came, I cried that I was here without hope of release, and for crying Miss Grady and her assistants choked me until they hurt my throat, for it has been sore ever since. And the implicit point that Bly makes again and again in her account is that the asylum is very much a place where people who are poor or foreign, or, yes, sometimes mentally ill, are just put away, and their condition really isn't monitored or looked at or cared for. Bly emphasizes that after she was checked into the asylum, she dropped her act. She did not try to act like a mentally ill person. She simply acted like she always did. And in her writings, she says that, well, yes, there were indeed people who had some kind of mental health issue going on at the asylum. There were also a lot of people who just got unlucky, and they seemed to be completely reasonable, completely lucid, not violent, able to care for themselves, but they were not able to get out. It was just circumstance that had brought them to this fairly nightmarish and Kafkaesque prison. One more extended quote from Bly. I know I'm doing a lot of that in this episode, but I think that she can describe it much better than I can. In this passage, Bly is talking to a woman who, completely reasonable, sane, lucid, and nonviolent, and Bly can't figure out why she's on Blackwell's Island at all. Why did you come here, I asked her one day, after we had indulged in a long conversation. I was sick, she replied. Are you sick mentally, I urged. Oh, no. What gave you such an idea? I had been overworking myself, and I broke down, having some family trouble. And being penniless and nowhere to go, I applied to the commissioners to be sent to the poorhouse until I would be able to go to work. But they do not send poor people here unless they are insane, I said. Don't you know there are only insane women, or those supposed to be so sent here? I knew after I got here that the majority of these women were insane, but then I believed them. When they told me this was the place, they sent all the poor who applied for aid, as I had done. And the best summary of Bly's time in the asylum comes from the end of her account, and 
It's just two sentences long, where she says, The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. Bly did get out. Uh, the New York world was able to secure the release of their reporter, and her writings created something of a sensation at the time. Judicial inquiries into the state of the asylum on Blackwell's Island followed, and soon modern psychology would shed a bit of light on the little-understood field of mental health. What Nellie Bly did in that asylum is sometimes known as stunt reporting, but I think that's unfairly dismissive. What she did took real, actual courage, and I'd love to be even half the journalist that she was. She'd be one of my heroes if I had been. Because when somebody says asylum, you probably don't have the best image in your head. You're probably imagining something that doesn't have patients' best interests in mind. Nellie Bly helped paint that picture for us. And exposés like that helps to gradually improve mental health hospitals around the United States. Until people got deinstitutionalized. And that's a whole other different thing. A personal aside. My day job takes me into Portland, Oregon's Old Town. It's the section of the city widely known as Portland Skid Row. That's where the various public and private social services are, and that's where many of my city's homeless population will gather. And when I am in Old Town, I do see quite a lot of people who are struggling with mental health issues. Sometimes they are walking on the street, and they are talking to an imaginary friend or they are yelling at an imaginary enemy. I've seen men and women huddled in doorways, awake or not. I have seen people occupied in tasks that only they understand, and also others simply catatonic on my city's sidewalk. I might briefly think about deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities in the latter part of the 20th century, about how the system was problematic and we should have mended it rather than ending it, but mostly, I just go about my business. Compared to the asylum on Blackwell's Island, I'd hardly call that progress. I'm going to do two episodes on Nellie Bly. I promise you that next week's episode is not going to be terrible and depressing. Next week's episode will be far, far more um, lighthearted, and uh, nobody is going to be confined against her will, abused, or choked. I have an announcement. We're now on Stitcher. Go to uh, interestingtimespodcast.com, uh, click the subscribe tab, and you will see a link to our Stitcher feed. So if you're a Stitcher fan, we can now, you know, stitch with you. Uh, we are also on iTunes, as always. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. If you have any questions or comments or anything else, there is a contact box at interestingtimespodcast.com. And again, next week, we're going to be back with Nellie Bly talking about something not terrible. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.